Hey there, welcome to Engage Your Tribe, a podcast about the art and science of audience engagement. I'm Jeremy Shear, and my guest is Scott Forche, VP of Sales and Marketing at Metal Mobile. Scott, hello. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about Metal and about your role there. Sure. So for the past 13 years or so, Metal's been developing world-class mobile applications and broader digital experiences for clients across a wide spectrum of industries from healthcare to media to automotive and, and more. So for my capacity within Metal, I serve again, as you said, VP of sales and marketing for the agency. So I'm responsible for all demand generation efforts and business development. I see my role with clients as, you know, in, in, in a blue sky, happy path world as a, as a trusted advisor and advocate. I really Mm-hmm. work to help them marry the art of possible with the discipline of pragmatism in their digital transformation strategies. Although I'm so exhausted at that term, I wish we'd start talking about digital <laughs> transformation, but that's really my, that's my role within the organization and a bit about what we do. Excellent. Thanks for that. You're so right. Sure. Digital transformation. Like there's a, a way in which a certain term gets used so much that it ceases to have any meaning. I don't know if we're quite there yet with that, but we might be. I don't know, but maybe you and I can start the moratorium on the term. Yeah, there you go. Or come up with a, <laughs> come up with a new term that'll start trying. There we go. There we go. So, okay. So now before we get into the serious stuff, just for fun, I want to do something that I heard uh, someone do on another podcast that I thought was kind of cool. So I'd like you to tell us three things about yourself, two that are true and one that you make up, and then we'll reveal the made up one at the end. Oh, wow. Really put me on the spot here. <laughs> Let's see. So, so two truths and one on non-truth. Okay. Let's see. At any given time, you can find as many as five boys and one female living in. I was um, a failed child actor and I grew up as a cattle farmer on a working cattle farm. Wow. Okay. Those are really good. I have those all sound totally plausible. And we're going to find out at the end, which, which are true and, and which is non-true as you say. We won't use lie. We won't use lie. That's too harsh. We'll see what kind of uh, failed child actor I really am. So yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. All righty. So now I know that because we spoke earlier, and I know that one of your priorities in your role is seeking out new targets for sales and for marketing. So first, who are your who have your targets been? And why is that a priority? Why why is it a priority to seek out new targets? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, in, in the digital agency realm, I think the, the sort of default fallback target buyer persona tends to reside in the marketing department. Um, then I don't think that's a, a big surprise or hot take here particularly, but I, I tend to like to venture beyond simply the, the four walls of the marketing department. I think there's a lot of ripe targets that exist and maybe some unconventional pockets within organizations. So yeah, I'm constantly on the search for, for new buyer targets for app dev and, and digital services that at least in my experience, identifying and targeting these unconventional buyers is really a necessary effort in competitive differentiation. Again, not a really hot take here, but the boutique to mid-market digital agency space is fairly freaking crowded, right? Mm-hmm. So to complete in, in a noisy arena, venturing beyond simply just the marketing department has proven successful for me, again, in my experience. Um, marketing departments, um, you know, they tend to be, you know, fairly crowded and noisy as well. So for bespoke digital agencies to be heard and to become a priority solution among the rooms full of whiteboards with competing priorities. It's 
often important not only to identify new buyer personas in familiar industries, but um, to make sure that we tailor our outreach strategies and messaging to really speak to those areas where your solution can make a financial organizational, all those things that kind of keep those new buyer personas up at night. So I, I don't know if that answered your question. I feel like I rambled yeah. on that one, but. Yeah, no, no, no. That, that, that's good. good. We're going to, we're going to keep digging into this. So, so when you do begin finding like, oh, that when you, when you do think that you found a group of personas that might, you know, pan out, how do you go about, well, first of all, how do you find them? And then when you find some that look maybe promising, how do you validate them? Yeah, good question. So, well, if it's okay with you, maybe it's more simply explained through maybe just providing a real world example, if that's cool with you. Yeah, sure. Cool, cool. All right. So let's take, um, let's take healthcare industry, for example. So as a digital shop um, steeped in, in all things human-centered design, really our, our primary objective at Metal is to seek out the actual users that are in need of an enhanced experience where digital in any of its incarnations can make a positive impact, right? So if we view, and I think we should, the patient as the center of this heliocentric universe of patient experience, which we're hearing so much of now, a good example of one of these emerging buyer personas could be this evolving role of patient experience officer. A patient experience officer yeah. historically covered everything from, you know, making sure that you know, rules and regulations were properly followed, that nursing departments were fully trained and, and operational. It was really about sort of tactical blocking and tackling from patient experience perspective. Now, with the emergence of eHealth and or mHealth or, or however we want to term, you know, this sort of emerging marketplace, that role of that chief patient experience officer has has begun to evolve and has taken on much more digital capabilities, right? So we hear a lot about these you know, digital front door strategies where healthcare organizations can take inspiration from other industries like, say, retail, for example, to really deliver on digital functions that remove a lot of friction from the parents, you know, from the patient's provider decision-making process, for example, tactical solutions like guided navigation to locate physician offices, patient check-in, payer benefits evaluation. I mean, the, the use cases go on and on and on around this digital front door. So that Again, those that are involved um, in you know, sort of patient experience as that begins to emerge as, as a really you know, unconventional and ripe target, as opposed to maybe going directly to a marketing department of a healthcare organization. Uh, again, to take it a step further, you know, burnout among essential workers um, and the very real need to do more with less to deliver a really superior care experience and, and drive loyalty in you know an area where patients are beginning to take more and more responsibility for their own care. Right. It's not simply, you know, we've got the local hospital that we go to or a local specialist. We've got now, you know, a, a network of potential care providers that, that we can go to. You know, another interesting persona might be, you know, a head of physicians or nursing or chief clinician. Right. Um, so if we can identify a broader universal solution to a broader universal problem um, of burnout and being stretched too thinly, then we can present custom solutions that reduce unnecessary burden on care providers and maybe shift a degree of control of the patient's care to the patients themselves to assist in the evaluation of symptoms uh, and digitally share with uh, with physicians, let's say, uh, to eliminate kind of unnecessary on-premise visitations, more of an efficiency play that drives mm -hmm. cost out of the business, you know. And so once you, once you identify, you know, some of those folks, and it seems like there's a lot, just in that one example, a lot of good possibilities, how do you go about determining which ones are are where, where there's an actual market in which are just like, oh, well, we thought that could pan out, but it turns out we were wrong. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking, if you're, if the question I think you're getting to is who are the targets that, you know, may not 
be worthy of pursuit because you know, yeah. obviously, in, in, yeah, I mean, you really need to know, hey, you know, it's a lot of this is a trial and effort, a trial and error sort of effort, right? I mean, in terms of identifying new buyer personas, I, I think for me, the biggest indicator of target non-viability, again, I'm not sure if that's even a thing, but for lack of a better term, are, I guess, what I'd refer to as the non-believers. This is a, you know, a, a prospect or persona or an organization at large that just simply doesn't value digital as integral to their business. I, I realize that's a hard concept to grasp in 2022, but these dinosaurs, you know, very much still exist. So mm. if, for example, you're planning on pitching digital transformation, again, it's our term again, to a highly regulated utilities company, for example, you better have a very compelling offer. I can tell you that from experience. You better learn how to speak the language, which is a really interesting point too. I mean, again, around identifying key target personas and then more importantly how do we message to them it, it's really an exercise in understanding you know what keeps these organizations up at night right that's there's no hot take there again either but do do your homework right it should be pretty glaringly obvious pretty quickly which of those organizations um, and which of those industries is not necessarily as ripe for what we do that, mm -hmm. as others might be Okay. So do your research, do your homework. That makes sense. For sure. What about, you know, you mentioned, for example, the patient experience leader, right? Yes. It, could it be as simple as just seeking some of those folks out and just talking to them and asking them a few questions to get a sense of, you know, how they think, you know, beyond kind of doing the, the basic research about the industry, just having one-on-one -on -one discussions with the actual people. I mean, is that would seem like an obvious thing to do, but is it? No, I think you're absolutely right, Jeremy. I mean, again, that's the more you can incorporate elements of, you know, human centered design into the sales and business development process, I think, especially in terms of, of really getting to know your target personas and what makes them tick and develop some empathy for them, understand where their motivations and trepidations may lie. Um, you know, a lot of that work we do from a, a design you know, thinking sort of approach is is really predicated on on user research, right? And you know what you'll find, you know, when doing that research is quite often what users tell you they need versus what their actions exhibit they need are often diametrically opposed. So, to the degree you can go deep in your understanding of who those core user audiences are, and I think a, a great way to go about doing that is simply doing some some interviewing uh, and some, some one-on-one -on -one research it is, could be tremendously beneficial. I think that's an excellent point. So, but like, as, as you just said, though, what they might tell you in an interview and what they actually need based on what they do or their actions, like you said, can be really different. So how do you, how do you figure that out? Yeah. Again, I think that's, you know, an exercise in, well, I mean, certainly we've got, we've got to have a bit of a relationship kind of already formed, right. To, to be able to sort of, you know, observe these targets in the wild, so to speak. Um, but, you know, and again, a lot of that gets flushed out kind of once a deal is already sold, right. That's when you get into uh, you know, deeper sort of levels of, of pre-development, right. Where we get to really deeply understand you know, from a like a, a mapping of a journey perspective, you know, where gaps in engagement might exist. And, you know, then it's an exercise in determining, you know, where those gaps in engagement exist. Is there a digital solution that could potentially, you know, augment um, or, or fill in that gap? And then it's an effort in, in intelligently prioritizing you know, all of those efforts. So of all the things we could be doing in digital to increase engagement, 
know, what are the right things to be doing? So there's a degree of, you know, if we kind of view it on that traditional X, Y axis where we've got, you know, impact and feasibility, you know, what are those high impact things that we think we can do right away versus what are the things that could be high impact, but are going to require some additional investments and people process and technology to pull off. Uh, equally important to know because those form the foundations of longer term roadmaps. But a lot of that sort of really in-depth observational research normally doesn't happen until we get into discovery. At least from my, from my, from my experience. Yeah, I hear you. Okay. So the time has now come for the big reveal. Oh boy. We need to learn the truth. So let's, <laughs> first of all, let's review the things that, that you mentioned. Help me remember what they were. One of them was. One of them was I'm yeah, surrounded by boys. It's five boys, you know, one female, which you can gather is my wife. And there's even some, right, okay. even some, some male dogs in that process. So <laughs> drowning in the, the blue end of the pool. Second, second was I was a failed child actor. Okay. Right. And second, and second was I grew up on a cattle farm and was a, a cattle farmer. The, okay. Right. So in my much younger years. So mostly boys, and then your wife, failed yep. child actor. That is intriguing, and grew up on a cattle farm. So I'm going to – I'll take a guess, and then you Please. tell me if I get it. Please. I really want it to be true that you were a failed child actor. So I'm going to say growing up on a cattle farm is, is false. But am I right? Ah, you're so close. You're so close. Funny enough, I, have, I am both a failed child actor. I had a, a role – of an extra, I tried out for a movie and got down to the finalist and, and didn't get the role, but uh -huh. was called back to be an extra and spent a couple of days on set. And of course, all of that footage ended up on the cutting room floor and never actually made my big screen oh, wow. debut. I did get to meet Sissy Spacek, though. She was lovely. That, wow. was, that was the highlight. And I also did grow up on the on a cattle farm and raise cattle oh, in my wow. younger years. Yeah, I was born and raised in Upper East no Tennessee. No way. So, um, and yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. And so, so the it's false that you don't have it. It's not all boys. It's actually exactly the opposite. Um, I've got oh, uh, at wow. any given time, there are four women and two female dogs in my house at any oh. given time. I do have one boy dog, but he's such a mama's boy, he pays no attention to me. So, <laughs> that, that, that's really so no, I'm, I'm actually the opposite. I'm completely surrounded by females. I think that's, uh, wow. I, mean, I, would, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. It certainly made me a more empathetic human being. Yeah. Okay. Well, that you played that game really well because I, I just hey, immediately assume like, well, that just sounds like, sure, you're, why would you make that up? Like that, you know. See, failed child actor. There you go. I should have gotten failed that part. Failed child actor. Right. Wow. What was, what was the part for? What was the thing? What was it was a movie? The movie was called The River. It was uh -huh. it starred Mel Gibson and Sissy Space. Like it was filmed in the wow. area of the country where I was born and raised. So, Wow. Did you, so you met Sissy Spacek. I did. did you like did. do a scene with her or something? Mm -hmm. uh, I had, well, yeah, I mean, I was driving around in a truck and walking around downtown with her. Oh, wow. As the footage, but again, it never made it to actual theaters. That's ended up still on the really cool, though. Did you, you, did, you didn't get to meet Mel Gibson, though? No, no, he was filming other scenes, other places, but I was only wow. there for a few days. But yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Wow. Still have the check, still have the check from Universal, never even cashed it. Oh, really? Wow. That's yeah. a cool memento. I love it. Well, Scott, thank you for that and for, for a great discussion overall. Learned a lot. Really interesting. Thanks so much. Jeremy, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's uh, had a blast. So cheers. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Engage Your Tribe. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, you might as well give the show five stars and leave an over-the-top comment about how much you love the podcast. You know you want to. 
If you're a marketer or an internal communicator and you're interested in podcasting, we've got tons of free resources on the website at tribknowledge.com. That's T-R-I-B knowledge.com. Thanks for listening and staying engaged.